0: What's up? My name is Alex Miller, and I'm here with my friend Simon Wu. We're here on the fourth Wiki Game Guides Community Podcast. And you know, we got a lot of wonderful topics here today. Hope you guys will take a listen. We're going to start with our favorite segment, Community Callback. We love hearing from you guys. We got a lot of good comments on the third Comcast, as well as a pretty lengthy email that we're going to go through. So we'll start it off with Scumbag Ben. Laconic, as always, with the uh, with the comment, this is a good-looking post. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, it's referencing uh, our posting of the show notes. We, we put those up with the, with the podcast when we host it on the site. And early on, I think the first Comcast and the second one, they were pretty long. They were looking a bit closer to our actual copies that we'd look at during the show and not as user-friendly as they could have been, so that's why... Uh, Simon and myself went through and tried to edit it down and maybe strip it down to the bare bones, just the the talking points, if you will, and throw those up there with the third Comcast. So hopefully you guys like that. Made it a little bit easier to address certain points and get what you wanted into the comments. And that's I think that's what we're going to do going forwards.
1: Um, and I'll take the next two together because they're related. Uh, rage quit. Another one of our newer podcast regulars, Fast Becoming, says, Another great listen. Really enjoying these casts. I'm thinking about giving the next-gen consoles a miss and building a beast gaming PC instead. Only thing putting me off are the people telling me I will have to upgrade the graphics card every few months. Is this true, or are they going a bit over the top? Thanks. To which KRN replies, Not at all. Just invest in a good brand, NVIDIA or AMD. I would I those are the only two, I think, when you build the rig. I've had my AMD Radeon HD for about a year and a half at this point with no issues. Driver updates are frequent about once a month or so. So it's good to see that users are starting to get out of the kind of usual notion, the preconceived notion you have of a comment, which is just a simple sentence or two, saying this is good or this is bad, which we saw a lot with the first and second uh, releases of the um, the podcast. But now we're starting to see this, that they're actually getting into um, the way that we'd want it, to pose questions, to ask questions, to start conversations, to start discussions. And we're about to see from the next few comments and from the listener emails that people are becoming really involved submitting in. Uh, basically really intensive analysis that they've done on their own, whether they agree or disagree with us, or providing articles that um, that go off of things that we've mentioned in previous podcasts. And guys,
0: as we've said from day one, from the very first podcast, this is about you. We want to hear what you have to say. We're just trying to start the discussion, and that doesn't really work unless you guys help us continue it and keep it going. So, so far you guys have done a wonderful job of that. We've loved getting all these comments. And next is MadRaz with... Great cast, guys. The audio has improved again since last time, and you'll be one of my main sources of information in the gaming world. I also completely agree with what's happening to console gamers, which I am. I really hate these flash games, in quote. Still call them that. And the small screen cell phone stuff. Never been into that. I feel like the whole gaming industry... Uh, is going from quality to quantity.
1: Amen, brother. Stay strong. As I said last week, stand strong. Stand together.
0: Yeah, exactly, Simon. Uh, Now, uh, he continues with, First TV went bad, then movies, and now games. Most of them. I'm not jumping to buy the next-gen consoles, either. Besides, whenever I buy some new hardware, one month later, a better version comes out, and I wasted my $400. I hate that. Maybe we should use Facebook against them and make a hardcore gamers page on Facebook. It has done wonders in the past with other issues. Winky face. Yeah, so, I mean, that sort of is going along with uh, one of the things we talked about last week with that that contract console maybe locking you into something and then a new deal coming out later on. So, we, you know, we love comments like this where it just addresses multiple things and just goes through and just sort of puts yourself out there and what you feel... And you know, as we saw just a second ago, Simon is obviously in full agreement with that with that comment.
1: Alright, next we've got Rare Daniel, who did two in a row, says, Wow, thank you for picking the topic I picked, I guess. I think they could do another game after AC three with just pure Desmond. I think it would work really well. And another thing, I was just playing AC Revelations one thing that I didn't like is that you had to go around the entire world to collect flags to do the Desmond bits. Apart from that, keep up the work and uh, the keep up the work you are doing doing and game on. Well, um, yeah, absolutely. If you have a topic that you'd suggest, then we'll definitely consider it and try to work it in because that's your suggestion to us. We'll take them all very seriously. As for the Assassin's Creed thing. Um, definitely uh, appealed to my sense of OCD that I had to finish everything, and to finish everything, I had to run around collecting bits. Now, this was, I think, a little bit um, mitigated in Revelations in particular, which is when you collected half, the other half just showed up. Thank God for that, because um, I think they really tried to throw you a bone there. Yeah, saving Achievement Horse
0: like Simon a little little bit of time, a little bit of frustration.
1: Okay, so next up we've got
0: uh, this pretty extensive email, and we're just putting it out there from the beginning that it is our policy, that we're not going to say you know a name or any personal information like your email or anything, unless you ask us to, so we're just going to go ahead and assume you prefer to remain anonymous, However, things like quotes, we're obviously going to read out your username because that's visible on the site there.
1: Um, Yeah, so I think what we'll do is we'll kind of break this up into individual sentences. Every kind of point that he makes, we'll um, have a, a thing or two to say about that. That's how we're going to take it. Okay, so first
0: off, I'd like to say that you guys did a brilliant job with this. I thought I would be put to sleep, but it was amazing. I've always wanted to do this exact same thing, but can never start up my own podcast. If you guys don't mind, I have a bit of input on the things that I remember after just listening.
1: I'm definitely on Alex's side with the next-gen Xbox console. I don't think Microsoft is ready to release a new console anytime soon. The main reason is that I'm not ready for it. I know it sounds stupid, but I am the consumer. I am a hardcore gamer, always open to the next new thing. I feel like they would be robbing themselves of cash if they announced the new console before 2014 to 2015. The Kinect has been in no way utilized to its full potential yet, and many consumers are starting to jump on the 360 motion sensor bandwagon. Games are hitting a peak for the console, but innovation is still up for grabs. All it takes is a few cool arcade titles and an FPS that successfully, keyword successfully, uh, strays away from the norm to get the market stimulated. So let's uh, take that segment and let's uh, take it, pick it apart. Firstly, by 2014 2015, holy crap. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I, I said two to
0: three years out, so that is probably around my estimation, maybe a little bit sooner, just looking at some of the, th- the things coming out lately. Maybe one to two years, but I definitely think it's a possibility. Going out that far, I know Simon is you know, clenching his teeth and uh, afraid of that. But I mean, it's a it's a possibility. And as the the listener says here, there are uh, several, several things that they could do to keep it going to that point. Pretty much all he's saying here is innovation, new IPs, and different ways to really address gaming would be the way to sort of. I, I don't know. Extend the life of the current console, and I almost wonder. As they base, they're basically saying here that it's reached its peak hardware-wise, and I almost wonder, is it really necessary to keep this going on the current console, or could I mean, if if it's if this is all sort of on the software side, of the all uh, the conceptual, the intellectual side of it, thinking about new ways to do gaming, then couldn't this just come onto the next console? I think potentially with new resources and maybe uh, just better hardware, you could take these new idea ideas and you could, you could do new things with them, but then you could do those new things even better. And I mean, I, ha- I hate to sort of go against someone who's agreeing with me here, and I, I thank you for that, but I, I definitely think that if it's just going to be innovation and different ways to look at gaming and nothing really advancing on the hardware or graphical side of things, I do think that we are going to see the next-gen consoles Mm -hmm. on the sooner side uh, rather than uh, later on.
1: As far as uh, Kinect not being utilized to its full potential, I have to agree, and that ties into the segment we did on the last podcast about analyzing the Kinects, uh, whether the promises were kept, whether they have been fulfilled, and whether we believe that they will be. Um, and recently I just saw an ad for, I think, the new Steel Battalion game where there was a quote that got me interested that was from a review site, game site, that said, this is the first hardcore game for the Kinect. Now, remember the Steel Battalion had that really massive custom controller, and now that, uh, Kinect is out, apparently, I guess, you just, like, use various hand gestures to, you know, fire and move your mech around. Uh, That actually got me interested, not so much as in that I'm going to go out and buy a Kinect, but interested to see if this is any kind of new and, as you mentioned, innovative implementation of the technology.
0: So, going on from there, um, he then says, also, as we've been seeing and like you guys mentioned, the console is evolving into a multi-purpose device. No longer is gaming the only selling point. I spend more time on my Xbox using Netflix gaming this year. Net, I'm, I think it's supposed to be using Netflix then gaming this year. Just because with school, when I don't have time to game, I could still watch a short TV show. So I, I completely agree with that. I've been using my, my Xbox for Netflix a ton. Also things like Hulu, where after work you can literally just fall down on your couch hit two or three buttons, you know, mash the A button a couple of times, hit the stick over a bit, and you're there, and you're just watching your content, and you're good to go. And it's, it's really it's nice because it's relaxing. I, I mean, I love gaming. It's a wonderful pastime and a very good way to relax. But if, you know, at the end of the day you're just really tired, then I think these extra uh, ways that the, uh, that the Xbox, can, and also the PlayStation 3 for that matter, can provide you with additional content are really excellent and i really I'm, I'm happy that it's moving in this direction i would just hope that they don't lose focus on sort of the the origin of it and what it's at least for me what its true purpose is and that's for gaming
1: yeah you i mean your behavioral patterns are tying into this larger trend that we've said week after week, which is the numbers that Microsoft released, that the Xbox is now more used for non-gaming purposes than for gaming purposes. All right, next, let's see. Uh, Now, what I am not on Alex's side with is that a Kinect-like feature will be integrated into the next console. The electronic markets are moving to sleek and convenient, not the old, clunky, brick-style Xboxes and laptops we started with. I think Microsoft will port-connect nicely to the new console, and possibly include new features like the ones you you guys mentioned. I don't have an SSD in my current PC, but with the hype you guys just gave it, I will definitely start investing now. Having something like this in a console would be amazing. Yeah, I
0: mean, that's okay, you know, obviously you don't have to agree with me on everything, because as we said, this is a discussion. We're putting points up there, and we just we want to hear your opinion. We're happy you guys are setting it into us. As far as sleeking and slimming down, I mean that's what I said in the first podcast. Is I think things are going to get smaller, going to have much smaller um, uh, environmental impact, stuff like that. They'll be smaller and sleeker. I definitely think they could implement the Connect into that. I mean I'm looking at my my Connect right now, and it's all it is is three little cameras or little circle thingies, I'm assuming our cameras, right next to each other. They're no more than two-and-a-half, three, four inches total like, lined up. So I think you could definitely implement that across the face of a new console. And as far as just the, the hardware of it, I don't think it necessarily needs to be in that long, straight, r- ruler-shaped line that it is right now. I definitely think you could just sort of fold that into the, the back or side
1: or what have you of the next console. So. And as far as uh, implementing it into other devices, integrating it, I'm going to jump off consoles for a second and say that the new Sony Veo, I think, E-series, or one of their new uh, mainstream laptops, actually has... Uh, somehow where the webcam of the laptop should be, it has a gesture sensor so that when you're, like, using media, apparently you wave your hand in front of the screen and the gestures work on that. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, and
0: as we, we've we seen, a lot of people have been working with Kinect on, actually on the computer. Some people are even saying that there might be some, some Windows 8 functionality with the Kinect on the computer. Actually, we, we know a, a close friend of ours uh, is actually sort of in his spare time been playing around with the Kinect on his computer and sort of programming games on his PCs, so...
1: Yeah, he actually made, um... He's, uh, in a kind of a post-AP computer science class and he actually created Tetris using the Connect. you know, where you have a certain amount of time and these blocks come down on the screen and you've got to move them and rotate them and drag them into wherever you want them to go. It's actually pretty neat.
0: I would just like to point out that while Simon was explaining that, he was doing all the hand motions to move the blocks around and place them in the correct spot. So,
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. As for all right, his next paragraph, as for the Crisis 3 slash COD discussion you guys had, I learned something. I had no idea Crisis 3 was announced. I definitely think the game will continue to give PCs a run for their money. It is absolutely necessary for games to keep pushing the envelope on graphics. Some franchises (coughs) (coughs) get comfortable with their engine and stop the progression of graphics in games, which isn't totally necessary for an amazing experience, but looking at games like Skyrim and Battlefield 3 is definitely nice. As far as the FPS changing things up topic, this is a topic that I often hate to address. The fact of the matter is is that no matter how much the environment changes, the gameplay rarely goes with it. That's why I was so excited to see the gameplay of AC3 and how the new assassin, Kyle or whatever his name was, it was actually Connor, uh, moves through the forest setting and colonial buildings rather than these ancient large-scale cathedrals and such.
0: So yeah, uh, this sort of this goes back to what we were saying just a few minutes ago where I think we're going to need to keep pushing the graphical envelope and I hope we do continue to do so. And that that is why I think that the new consoles are coming maybe sooner rather than later. Not not as soon as Simon thinks Simon thinks they're just around the corner, I think they're maybe two corners away uh if you will, but I do think they're coming sooner rather than much later just because of what you said here. That we do need to keep pushing that graphical envelope and I think we're starting to reach the boundaries of what we can do currently
1: Oh, contrary, I think we've hit it and now we're just bumping our heads uncomfortably against the ceiling at this point um, Dan and John have been doing Mass Effect 3 and other sort of Live streams on a weekly basis. They're pretty not great. You should check them out. And one of the things that they frequently talk about, while do while in the course of those, is that uh, noticing the gulf between consoles and p- the PC in terms of graphics. And Dan and John, they just say. I think John at one point even just said the Xbox just looks like crap. Mass Effect Three. This is the latest game, and to see to hear that. Uh, from a person who actually has both, likes both, it's pretty striking.
0: Yeah, but to be fair, Simon, this has been pretty common since day one of the three hundred and sixty. I mean, the thing about consoles is you are not getting the best performance, but you are gar- getting guaranteed gameplay. You are getting a consistent performance generally, as long as there is, you know, not game-breaking bugs or what have you. But you know, once all those things are ironed out, you will get a consistent gameplay experience that, while not looking the best, doesn't look the worst, and is pretty easy and simple to do. With PCs, what you've always had is, if you have the time and if you have the money, you can push the graphical envelope as far as you want. You install the latest graphics card, you set that up in an SLI configuration, you do whatever you want, you can just push it way, way, way beyond what consoles can do now. And that's been the way it's been as long as I can remember, at least with consoles. And so I don't think that's necessarily anything new. I don't think that's necessarily meaning we're running out of space on the console for the the, graf- the graphics, at least. I mean, I think we are nearing the end, but I do think there are ways that they can continue to push things and get the the very best out of there, I think. So, I mean, you look at something like Skyrim, that's still relatively recent, and that was innovative in the way that it provided draw distance and other things like that that we hadn't really seen since something like Crisis.
1: As far as the Assassin's Creed comments, um, I definitely agree with you. I'm excited to see how this gameplay uh, pans out, maybe a bit with a bit of trepidation, because as you do mention, it is a paradigm shift from massive cathedrals like the Santa Maria del Fiore in Florence or whatever, where you'd have these entire platforming puzzles on the dome of a giant, giant church. And now, yes, there are colonial cities, but they're not very huge. They don't have, like, 50-foot-high city walls around them. They kind of melt off into the vast American wilderness. The buildings aren't very high. They're maybe, you know, 30 feet at their tallest. And what we really have to rely on is nature To provide the platforming puzzles and the epic vistas that we're used to with Assassin's Creed,
0: and this is sort of this has always been a a characteristic of America. I mean, if you look at at something like art history, if you are looking at Europe, you are always seeing these these portraits of you know massive buildings or cities, all these sweeping vistas of, of things like that. Versus in America, you look at something like the Hudson School or other American painters; they're showing America's natural scenes of beauty they're not showing real cities or buildings or skyscrapers or anything until much later on you see all these sweeping vistas like niagara falls and the forests and rivers and streams of america so i think that's not necessarily something new but it is interesting to see it incorporated into a game and maybe even uh leads credence to the whole discussion of our games art
1: He concludes, I would love to make more comments, but I have no time. I, I know how you feel. Thanks for the awesome podcast, guys. Definitely looking forward to more. Hopefully, I can eventually get on. And We would like to address that comment. If you'd like to be on the podcast, send us an email. Um, which we'll provide at the end of community callback, or however else you want to reach us. We'd be happy to have you on. We'd be happy to discuss how we can do that with you and record and get more community involvement even directly.
0: So next, uh, we got an article sent in from Wired Magazine on Epic's Unreal Engine, which reads... Paradigms are shifting. Cheaply developed mobile titles and an unforgiving economy have cast doubts on the future of the blockbuster game. Why go big and risky when you can be safe and profitable? Unreal Four is Epic's answer to that question. With it, the company is staking its existence on a bold prediction that the future of the industry depends on ever more realistic visual spect- spectacles. And this is sort of this is just what we were talking about last week with our whole discussion on casual games. Uh, you know are they the way to go for companies you know take that that cheap out pretty much make a guaranteed profit but not really make much of anything but it's it's nice to see such a respected publication as wired magazine sort of seconding our thoughts on this it really it, it at least makes us feel like we're saying the right things
1: we said there aren't any easy answers to this, and this article provides some insight into what the industry itself, what insiders in the industry, the people who are responsible for shaping its direction, really are thinking. And so here we see Epic, makers of Gears of War and the Unreal Engine, which they license out to many different games. They, they've decided, I guess, kind of on Crytek's line, that the way we keep it relevant is push... Graphics envelope, like we said in the previous segment, or for the previous listener, push it, make it as real as possible like avatar style graphics, total immersion, make it indifferentiable from real life. I guess. Uh, However, we, I guess, I would like to disagree with the fact that they said they are staking their entire existence on this bold prediction. Um, Because even as they bet increasingly on this hyper-realistic settings, they make the mobile game Infinity Blade, which if you haven't seen uh, Dan's Let's Play, uh, go ahead, check it out. It's pretty interesting. And they, like id, they're a spec company, which means that they make the parameters and they sell the engine uh, not only to game makers, but also design firms and anyone who needs high fidelity and advanced rendering. And those services aren't going any, away anytime soon. Yeah,
0: I mean, if you, you keep pushing it, making it even more realistic eventually, uh, I mean, we might even see this now and not even realize it. We might see these in things like movies and such, where, you know, in the background, you know, there's an explosion or something, there's bodies going around, you know, stuff like that in these sort of action type movies. You're probably seeing a, a, a game. Uh, engine there, rendering those things. so,
1: Right. People like NASA, people like automakers, they use CAD software. They use the Unreal Engine uh, to model what it would look like in real life. Um, so that's, going, that's always going to be in high demand. NASA will continue to exist. People will still need cars that look nice. But m- moving back to games, even if they make the greatest software on Earth, are the OEMs going to be willing to meet them halfway? Again, as we said in our last uh, Comcast, is Microsoft going to make the necessary technical improvements to make Unreal Engine 4 work? Because I remember uh, when the Xbox 360 was uh, in the development process, they were going to put 256 megabytes of RAM on this thing, and Cliffy B and Unreal uh, and everyone at Epic Games really got on their asses about it, said, no, you cannot just put 256 on there. You need at least 512. That is the bare minimum for any kind of improvement. So Microsoft caved, and they put 512 in there, and we're all better for it. I feel like we might be doing this this time, except that now the economy's bad. It wasn't booming like it was back then. Microsoft might not cave this time, and we might see kind of token improvements, but really trying to aim at price. So we can all hope that that won't be the case, that Microsoft
0: does a, a bang-up job making this, this next console. So, I mean, fingers crossed on that. The article goes on. Cliffy V says, It's up to Epic and Tim Sweeney, the founder, to motivate Sony and Microsoft not to phone in what these next consoles are going to be. It needs to be a quantum leap. They need to damn near render Avatar in real time because I want it and gamers want it, even if they don't know they want it.
1: Oh, uh Cliffy, We very much know that we want it and we want it badly. Um, Crytek certainly agrees with you here. They love to render Avatar damn near in real time uh but there's not been a significant push of urgency from many other developers um cough, cod, cough, as we've mentioned before. It also mentions that uh the article goes on to mention that there are significant tools in Unreal Four designed to significantly reduce the amount of manpower needed to make the same level of work. So there are a lot of automated tools and uh, utilities that can streamline the process, and hopefully hopefully that will give game makers and game publishers an incentive to continue making these really in-depth, enriching experiences for less, and it'll shore up the sagging uh, confidence that console games can be a viable source of money, while still providing a better experience, or at least the same experience.
0: Yeah, though hopefully at the same time we're, we we hope not to see uh, developers go out of a job like we've seen, unfortunately, at Studio Thirty Eight in the last week, two weeks with those developments there. So we yeah. just like to go ahead and you know say, hopefully they can. Uh, get on there and find a new job so we go out to them
1: and also uh to Bioware who laid off um a lot of the team behind Star Wars The Old Republic in uh their studios in Austin Texas because as sad to say as it is Old Republic has not caught fire the way that everyone, it might have been suggested. As far as I know, the registration numbers have been underwhelming. It's been underperforming, and I really have no idea why. It has been the most sincere and clearly the best challenge to wow at, to date. And I, so
0: I, mean, I think most of that, I think that's just time. I think it needs time, and a lot of people are, are quick to say it's failed because of the um, some of the dropping subscription numbers. I know it was something like, it dropped from like 1.7 million to 1.2. And, well, not to say that, you know, 500,000 people aren't a significant amount of subscribers. Those, I'm at least assuming, considering the time they dropped off, probably got the game around Christmas or, some, you know, some other holiday. And they had it for a little bit. They weren't really uh, focusing on it too much. They, they weren't really there, I guess, as excited about it as some of the, the more hardcore community and I think the wonderful thing about The Old Republic is it definitely has that hardcore community, and I think that is necessary. I think that's been locking in some other MMOs uh, that have uh, attempted to uh, try and take down WoW. So I think, I think it's a matter of time. I think it can build, and hopefully with new content, I know there's um, a, new, a new patch coming out soon, and they are going to continue to add content. Hopefully they can just sort of build and grow. And I think give it time, it, it could very
1: well still challenge. All right, so that concludes that. We are at 30 minutes at this point. Yeah, so uh, if you want to talk to
0: us, you want to get in on the community callback, our email is comcastwgg at gmail.com. So go ahead, shoot us an email with comments or with an article, anything you'd like us to talk about. We'd be happy to address it here. Also, comment below, or if for whatever reason you want to, go to the forums, that'd be cool too whatever you want and we're going to go on to our next segment but I'd just like to point out that uh, we have had this off week obviously because Dan and John did their podcast this last week that's how things are going to go normally what we're going to try and do is be every other week you know, hopping over uh, two chimps just sort of going back tagging off with them but given their busy schedule this summer we may see it more often where we are doing two or three podcasts in a row just because of the nature of their travels and their schedule for the summer. So we'll sort of we'll, I guess we'll, we'll let you know how it's developing. If you see it, we'd love you to take a listen and you know enjoy, but that's sort of that, that's our, our schedule going forward and into the summer. But right now we have exciting news, and that is that we are now officially on the iTunes store. We are listed there, so you're not going to have to mess with any sort of crazy, funky links that Simon puts up that may or may not work. Now all you have to do is go onto iTunes and search WGG Comcast in the uh, search field, and it's going to go ahead and pop right up. And yeah, go ahead and comment there as well as below. And uh, if you give us five stars and get us up there in the ratings, that'd be even better. Hopefully we can spread out and uh, get some more fans, get some more feedback, and just make this so much better. And uh, as Dixical re- uh, recommended to us a little while ago, he's wondering what we're playing and you know if we can maybe talk about that on the podcast. And this is just this is a perfect example of the things we're looking for. We're always looking for new segment ideas or new things to talk about. So I think we're going to try and incorporate this into uh, every podcast now, just give a quick wrap-up of uh, what we've been playing lately. And for me, that's been a, a little bit of the original Assassin's Creed. As I think I said in a previous podcast, I'm doing a, a complete run all the way through that series. And then uh, when I wasn't playing that, uh, I've been playing the hell out of Realm Total War. It's an old game. It's an amazing game. I just reinstalled it on my computer, and I've just been absolutely owning it that game, and it's so much fun.
1: All right, and... Uh, um. My Mass Effect Total Insanity run through has taken a hiatus right now. I'm stuck on Vermeer. I don't really want to bother with that right now because I'm currently, like Alex, playing an old favorite. I recently had a Star Wars Battlefront 2 tournament, 2v2 Galactic Conquest, uh, in which I got thoroughly destroyed. Um, Also, been playing a little bit of Left 4 Dead and currently planning a Left 4 Dead 2. Um, four-player system link uh, party, so that's that's what I've been doing on my end. So, yeah,
0: it was f- some fun stuff, some oldies but goodies, as well as some little bit newer things, but yeah. So next, we were thinking about doing an E3 preview show, just talking about what we thought was going to happen, and sort of previewing the whole games extravaganza that is the early part of June, but as Dan and John said, they're going to go ahead and do that, and we're not going to steal their thunder, so Simon just has a couple of predictions he wants to throw out real quick, and then we'll move into our, our first segment.
1: Right. Uh, Microsoft is going to be pretty content. They're the leaders. Uh, they're just going to you know, throw a couple of new things out there. The onus is on Nintendo to really make the Wii U compelling for people. Sony is really going to be the wild card. They're going to probably hopefully launch something drastic and the entire industry it's going to be a conference of soul searching really trying to figure out where the industry is going to go from here on out as we've said before this is an industry and a conference in change and possibly in jeopardy of its survival
0: okay thanks for that simon and you know if there are any sort of major sort of gaming events like that as you know Packs or GamesCon, whatever, I think European Expo, all those different things. We'll maybe do something similar to this where we just sort of give some quick predictions uh, in the case that Dan and John do a, a full preview. So, starting us off today is limit- Limitless Editions. How far is too far?
1: Now, this one, I was looking through GameStop's website a while ago and I came across um, the Halo 4 Limited Edition. And it It prompted a thought in my head about how much is too much with these uber limited editions. And credit where credit is due. Um, Part of this is due to the Rooster Teeth podcast. Where they talked about the excessiveness of the Walking Dead um, super collector's set. Which is a zombie head with a screwdriver jammed into its eye. And it looks horrendous. I don't know why you'd want to put it on your shelf, even.
0: Yeah, you can tell it did really well at Toys R Us.
1: Yeah, exactly. And really, the industry has been marked by a flood of just terrible um, gimmicks to spend more money. First, like the night vision goggles from Modern Warfare 2, a real classic in terms of useless products. Uh, this trend really started with Halo 3 though I think you'll agree Alex the Myolner helmet that they um put on
0: Yeah I remember this was several several years ago and uh, one of our our friends a mutual friend of ours got the uh, the limited edition and at the time you know we saw the packaging we're like oh this is awesome this is so cool this is going to be sweet you get a helmet we took it out it was maybe half the size of your head and it yeah. was it didn't really open up it sort of had like a little game size slit in it and we're like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this?
1: And I was perusing an actual gamestop recently I saw the Saints Row the third uh limited edition it had like branded headphones they were like beats except instead of where the B was it was the Saints Row logo
0: yeah and this reminds me I, th- I can't remember which call of duty it was but then there was that uh that throat mic. That they sold at some point.
1: Oh no, that you know what that was. That was a third-party accessory to Modern Warfare Two. That was by like Mad Cats, oh, that, you know, one of those junk uh, third-party peripheral makers. Oh,
0: that's right. I'm sorry. Those they were all coming out at the same time. I remember they did get it did get promoted in with the same
1: sale though. I remember that. I'm sure. I'm sure it did. All this useless stuff, but um, I'm I'm not a, I may be a huge fan of some games, but that's exactly the point. I'm a fan of the game. Not whatever you know, cheap trinket that they throw in there. It, it makes no sense. And as far as the exclusive DLC is concerned, I mean, it's obviously a gimmick. You'll get like an avatar item or a little skin to use in multiplayer. But that's exactly where it should stay.
0: Exactly. I honestly, I don't, I don't really mind. Like I remember in uh, in Reach, there was a time when. Um the the blue flames you can only get if you signed up like on Bungie's site or something like that. And there's all these little things, you know, if you pre order through something they'll give you, as Simon said, different color like skins for your character or different things. But what really frustrates me and what is just such a pain for me is when there's actual game content like weapons or maps or characters or something that are exclusive only to one uh retailer that I can only get if I purchase through there, and by extension, I can't get the others because I bought the one at one place. And it forces you to choose which do you like better, even though you don't really know because you've had no experience with it and you've had no sort of trial period. It's sort of, choose which looks the best, but you don't even really get to do that.
1: And that's why we're seeing this lucrative trade pop up on eBay with DLC codes. People... Fetching twenty, thirty, even forty dollars in some instances for exclusive pre-order cards—just c- cards for a code on it.
0: Yeah, and once again, giving credit where credit is due, I remember uh, on a Rooster Teeth podcast a little while ago, they were talking about—I uh, think it was, I think it was PAX East. Uh, and they were at the Old Republic booth, and there were people who were lining up and getting back in line just to get codes for, like, baby Tauntauns or something so that they could sit on them and sell them on eBay, you know, six months, a year from now, when there'd be no other way to get them, and that'd be the only only way to have access to that content.
1: Right, the fontan, Uh Yeah, there are a bunch of, you know, kids trying to get them so that they could mark them up on eBay. But I don't... Yes, it's frustrating to have certain retailer-exclusive things. The most frustrating thing, and thank God this has not become pervasive, but I certainly could see it come pervasive, is if there's day one DLC or exclusive packs, but they add substantive content to the game, as in, you know, story. If, if Assassin's Creed, if you could only get certain memory segments of story... If by purchasing the limited edition, that'd be absolutely terrible. You know, you would be missing vital story content or something that really integrally adds to the understanding. Imagine if Mass Effect, the Prothean DLC from Ashes, what if you had had to buy the limited edition for that? That'd be horrendous. You'd miss out on so much by by doing that.
0: Though, Simon, one thing I'm sort of curious about is What's the difference here between buying a standard movie and then going and buying, say, the director's cut or the extended edition? I mean, there's, there doesn't seem to be much of an uproar or something like that because I suppose maybe that's how it's originally presented to you. That's, that's what you're used to. But, you know, I, I have the, the Lord of the Rings extended editions for all three, and they literally almost double the time of the movie because there's so much stuff they cut out. And when you watch them all the way through... There's so many things that make so much more sense. But I'm not really angry at uh, Peter Jackson or any of those people for cutting it down. I thought the original movies were great, and I think these extended editions are even better. I mean, what, what exactly do you think is the difference between games and movies in this way?
1: Well, as I said, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet, but I could very much see Activision or EA doing this.
0: Well, I mean, do you consider, as you said, the the From Ashes that that's sort of what you're talking about here, where it's it's on disc, though though BioWare says it was it was only on disc because they had, like hadn't finished it by the time they were putting the disc out or something like that. But I mean, what what do you think is really the substantive difference between like From Ashes and what you're talking about?
1: Well, the difference is that you have an avenue to buy it. GameStop will sell it to you. I mean, it's first of all, it's day one DLC, but I'm not going to jump into that whole debate. What we're talking about is I have the ability to purchase this with the standard edition of the game. What if I can't? What if I have to shell out $30 more than if I'm not that interested in an art booklet or a behind-the-scenes featurette or anything like that, just to get this... DLC. I, I use this as an example because the Prothean was vital to the understanding of Mass Effect 3. I hope you agree and I hope all of those Mass Effect gamers will agree with me. What if you had completely missed out on that because you weren't willing to shell out $30? No, yeah, I, I completely agree. I got the... Um, I didn't get like
0: the, the Super Limited Edition or whatever, but I did pay the extra, what was like 10 bucks for the DLC or something. I completely agree. I, I used uh, the Prothean... ...on all of my missions just because I felt like otherwise I wasn't getting my money's worth. I wanted to hear what he had to say and what he had to comment on, on everything. And I I completely agree that he added a lot to the story... ...that I don't think would have been there if I hadn't shelled out that extra money.
1: And that's what I'm talking about. This sort of... uh, It is DLC, but it's vital to the understanding of the game... ...or it adds significant merit to the game. And it's locked for a select tier... Uh, What happened was, in Assassin's Creed 2, I remember, there were, in addition to the Assassin tombs, uh, there were what they called Templar hideouts. And it would be the same thing. It's like sneaking, running, jumping, platforming segments. um, And they were on the map in various important locations. But they only came with the limited edition. And now what Ubisoft did for this was... um, Several months, a while after the game was released, they eventually were uh, put on Xbox Live, Marketplace, PlayStation, Store. So that is an avenue that people could see this released. but thankfully they didn't really add much to it. It was just more platforming puzzles.
0: So is your objection more the inability to purchase from day one, inability to have access while you're playing the game, or is it just like just at all? Like, as you said there with Assassin's Creed 2, eventually it was on the marketplace. Are are you worried about something like that, or are you worried about something more where it's just not available ever unless you buy the certain edition?
1: Well, it's half and half. For example, I wouldn't have wanted to play with the Protheon on my second, third run-through of Mass Effect. I would have wanted it for my first one to get all that insight right off the bat, to really understand it fully the first time around to get maximum original impact because all the game is fresh to you, you're really experiencing it all for the first time, it would have, I felt, been dulled by a second time. And so a delay would have accomplished that, more or less. But then it's also half not, because the only example I can think of at this point, the Assassin's Creed, was non-vital gameplay. It was just, it didn't add anything to Ezio's story or anything like that. It was just a couple more platforming segments. You got some money, even though... At that point, I already had about $7 million. And what it was I was is I just saw an ad on, like, a banner ad on Xbox Live Marketplace. This was months after the fact. I hadn't touched the game in, in months. So I decided, you know what? Whatever. I'll check him out, had fun with it, and then put it down again.
0: Yep. And, I mean, that's valid points, though, Simon... I know you're not completely against limited edition of things. I know you're a big fan of limited edition
1: consoles. Absolutely. My first console was the Halo 3 limited edition console with green and gold highlights. And uh, I sold it when Modern Warfare 2 came out because that 20 gigabyte console and the original generation processor and power brick, they were just getting a little long in the tooth. And so it was, what, about four, maybe three, four years at this point, I was able to sell that at only a $100 loss. So the reason I like special edition consoles is they hold their value much longer, and there's a lot more demand for them, and you often just pay just a tiny bit more in a premium when regular xbox owners say of the white ones were selling them at huge loss 350 dollars in some instances i only had to lose a hundred dollars and then for i bought the modern warfare 2 special edition xbox as my replacement um and because it was one of the first elites with the 250 gigabyte hard drive and so i'm probably going to sell this xbox the moment they announce the uh the new the Xbox V next because as soon as uh, they do, then I'm gonna cash out and just wait because as far as I'm concerned, consoles and gaming, I'm, I really just want to make sure that I lose as little money as possible in the transitions.
0: Okay, so our um, our next topic of the cast is the PC conundrum. So DirectX 11. Point one is going to be launched with Windows eight, and it's going to improve uh, graphical performance across the board. Um, as well as Windows eight computers are going to be released with the Ivy Bridge Intel processor, which are going to further increase graphics. Integrated graphics are going to get a four thousand percent boost, which makes integrated gaming a possibility. I, I remember on one of my first computers, or well, on my one of my first towers several years ago, it had an integrated graphics card. and it was just shit for gaming. I literally could not do anything. And it was terrible. I couldn't do anything. And I was just, I was so frustrated. And at the, at, it made sense at the time where it, to get in and, you know, rip it out and to try and upgrade it, it would have cost more than just buying a new computer. So I, I couldn't really get to it. But with this new chipset, Simon, isn't it... It's pretty much going to be almost on par with, you know, the latest... Well, not the latest, but with a decent NVIDIA or AMD chipset, correct?
1: And, yeah, it's it's rival to many of the mid... Like, high, low-end, low-mid-end graphics card. Beats, beats all low-end AMD and NVIDIA discrete graphics. Significant... Intel's focused incredibly on consolidating the CPU and GPU in this one, making sure that they are much closer in proximity and make sure that there's far less distance and energy to communicate between them, as well as focusing on other aspects. And coupled with Microsoft really trying to make Windows 8 um, simpler in graphics, the core services use far less system resources and more performance is reserved for other use, thus. If Windows costs less, other programs have more more to work with. As well, they're getting rid of Aero, the uh, really the glass um, interface that took up a lot of resources, sucked down a lot of graphics processing power.
0: Now, Simon, I'm just wondering, is that still going to be an option on Windows 8, or are they just they're just completely throwing it out the window?
1: On um, the most recent uh, blog post on the building Windows 8 blog, um, there was like an 11,000 word blog post, and 10,363 words in, they said. Oh yeah, we're getting rid of Arrow. No word on whether it's going to be an option, um, whether you can still turn it on, it's off by default, or whether they've taken it out entirely. I would want them to put it in just as an option because for those people, hardcore gamers who are going to buy a desktop tower PC with super performance, they don't care. Uh, It's just for these new tablet users and ultrabook users that are going to be concerned. Though to be fair, Simon, with the new Metro interface, I could see how
0: they're phasing out sort of the 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 glossy look and shifting more to that that more standard sort of red with tiles kind of look. And I I, I mean, I agree with you. I sort of I hope they would keep it as an option. I mean, I'm a fan myself, purely on an aesthetic level. I like the way it looks. Uh, but I do agree it is very resource hogging. Like when I on my laptop when I'm out and about, I definitely I, I turn it off if I know I'm going to be uh, away for an extended amount of time, just because it is pretty resource intensive.
1: Yeah, and also it's about unifying the look. It's going to unify the look with the Xbox. And with the start screen metro tiles on Windows 8, as well as Windows Phone, they're trying to... This desktop really is the one place that kind of sticks out as different. And so they're really trying to bridge it the best they can.
0: Though, Simon, they, they they have to be careful, don't they, that they don't completely move away from the sort of traditional Windows desktop. Because I know talking to a lot of people, especially sort of more older people, like my parents and their friends... There's there's a lot more sort of caution and, and uh, hesitation when looking towards this new generation of Windows because it looks so radically different for such a large portion of it. I mean, if they got rid of the desktop, what is there to really make it, quote-unquote, Windows?
1: Right. They're not getting rid of the desktop as far as uh, traditional Intel processors are concerned. Now, with the new ARM tablets, they will... But that's another story for a different podcast, not for gaming. I'm going to concentrate back on what it is, and then I'm going to explain what this conundrum is for Windows in terms of uh, hardcore gamers and PC gamers. Windows 8 is going to have an Xbox companion app, which is going to turn your Windows PC or tablet into a remote for the Xbox, or a way to browse uh, the marketplace while connected to your Xbox.
0: And I know they've they've already released this app on Windows Phone 7. I actually I have it on my phone, and I've played around with it before. And it's 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 neat. It's uh it's an interesting way to sort of keep track of information while you're away, and, as well as also use it as like as a remote while you're here. And I think this goes back to an earlier discussion we had about. Uh, actually using the Kinect as part of the home media, this is just another way of, I think, trying to reduce the number of different input devices you have to have in order to control your console. Because I know, for at least for myself personally, I have my phone just about everywhere I go, and so I'm not going to have to be searching for it and, you know, digging under the couch or looking around all over the room trying to find it. I just whip it out of my pocket, and there I'm set to go.
1: Right. Windows 8 will also have an Xbox Hub with stats, friends, messaging, achievement, viewing, the marketplace, and more importantly, Windows 8 will have its own Xbox Live titles that will tie into Xbox console games and also net you achievements.
0: So, Simon, is this going to be almost like Games for Windows Live 2.0? Are we going to see uh, achievements in computer games but without the really shitty service and really shitty job they did in the uh, the first go-round?
1: Right. The implementation was terribly flawed in Vista and Windows 7. I think they finally figured out that we should not have so many disparate services. We're seeing this over and over again with Microsoft. Them consolidating services, same things are going to different places. Bing is on Xbox, Windows Phone, and now Windows 8. Xbox is also one of those unifying services. Woodstock or whatever their music service turns out to be when they reveal it at E3. Uh, We mentioned that on our first podcast, in fact. All these things will unify all of their consumer offerings so that people have a better understanding of where they're coming from. Now, here's where the conundrum hits. Um, Windows 8, obviously, as we know, has the Metro interface, which is where all these uh, hubs come into play, which is where all these neat experiences are presented. But, Windows 7, I definitely say, is, could be the next XP. The one that's dependable, that's stable, that's reliable, and used far beyond its intended lifespan, because it's the last of the Windows as we know it. Windows 7 is probably going to be downgraded onto the latest hardware, and tweaked, and made f- cleaner and faster than it currently is by the hardcore modding community. And so the hard decision is is Windows 8 worth it, especially if you're a PC gamer? And could the fact that Ivy Bridge and Windows 8 combined use far less of far more resources given to you to open up, quote, hardcore gaming, PC gaming to a new segment of people? That are these people who now have these Ultrabooks, which actually are pretty full-featured. Asus released a a 13.3-inch um, Asus Zenbook UX31VD, which has the latest Ivy Bridge processors, has a 1080p display, 13-inch screen, oh, um, albeit, but it has discrete graphics, and it's super thin. Like, these kind of implementation, you could r- actually play Crisis on kind of low settings.
0: Yeah, I remember, Simon, we were looking for a, a new computer for me uh, a couple months ago. You were helping me out with that. And I need, I needed a laptop... Uh, to replace my very aged desk uh desktop computer, but I wasn't really looking for a, a desktop replacement. I was looking for something that I could take with me on the go uh that had decent battery life, but also as a gamer, I wanted to have that discrete graphics card, and that was actually some of the things we're looking at were those sort of ultra books, those ultra portable computers, but that also have those specs so I don't, I don't know, Simon, do you think those are going to be uh,
1: more common, I guess, almost in a, in a gaming way? Uh, definitely. Mainstream graphics, um, I mean, mainstream laptops will get thinner, they'll get lighter, and we're also going to see either Ivy Bridge with its integrated Intel HD Graphics 4000, which is the new generation that will be able to handle um, basic games decently well.
0: And I'd just like to point out to all our listeners that these random names and uh, identification numbers and et cetera that Simon's putting out, he doesn't have a list here. That's all just from memory, and I think that's kind of ridiculous. So I'm just going to give him a quick little clap for that.
1: And, well, (laughs) the reason I know all these things is, to those um, hardcore PC gamers who might be listening out there who, who might be thinking, oh, you know, he's got a laptop, he doesn't know what it's like, um, I know that there are two things that PC, hardcore PC gamers love. It's talking about how, how long their pedigree is and knowing various facts and stats. So to tie both of those together, let me give you an idea of how long I actually have been custom-building PC rigs. The first one I ever built was a 1 gigahertz Intel Pentium 3 with 128 megabytes of RAM and uh, I think, oh God, maybe 8 gigabytes of storage, which was crazy at the time, uh, with Windows XP Professional, okay? there, there's, There's what I come from. And more recently, I've also helped my friend... Uh, build a new PC gaming rig from scratch. So, for those of you who think I'm singing from an ivory tower who have no idea what it's like down in the trenches, uh, there you go.
0: He just chooses to live in that ivory tower. He knows what it's like down there.
1: Yeah, exactly. I've, I have moved to um, laptops a while ago, and I have to tell you, I always wanted this, um, for the longest time, trying to get the nexus of battery life portability and power just meant money 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 it cost an insane amount the best example of where the three meet up to this point was the sony Vaio z which costs about oh i don't know for a decent configuration somewhere in the order of four thousand dollars but now we see processor power and battery life and portability rivaling that from this asus zen book it's probably not going to be more than thirteen hundred dollars it's unbelievable, and I really think I'm definitely going to jump back on PC gaming in earnest when I get a new Ultrabook that can handle it. Uh, I definitely foresee a lot of other people saying, hey, um, my my PC apparently can handle all these games because obviously I think one of the ways Microsoft is going to sell games now is through this Xbox Live. It's going to have a service probably, that tells you whether your PC can play these uh, hardcore games or not. And this is definitely going to be a way to bring hardcore gaming on PC to a lot more people. And I think that's a really good thing.
0: And at that point, Simon, is it even, is it even hardcore? Or are we, are, we, are we looking at a potential, I guess, mainstreamization of what we today consider sort of hardcore PC gaming?
1: Oh, it's definitely going to be in the mainstream, but let me tell you there's going to be a very there's still going to be a very clear delineation between that and casual
0: gaming. Well, you know we can all hope casual gaming finds its quick and quite grave soon enough, but as we, we've already addressed that topic, Simon has already made his feelings quite clear on, uh, on that issue so we're going to go ahead and move on to our next topic, which is is prequel play pertinent? I mean, it's I know a lot of these games recently that we've been seeing the last two or three years have been two or three or the next you know whatever it is it's just a continuation of already existing IPs without a lot of in- innovation as far as subject matter goes I mean sure there's been plenty of uh, innovation in gameplay uh, and other techniques in those series but we've definitely seen in the last several years a heavy emphasis on continuation of already successful titles.
1: So we're going to take a couple of the most successful franchises um, c- currently out, and we're going to analyze each one of them to see if you really need to play the uh, prequels to really get an understanding of the latest releases and possibly the upcoming release. And we'd like to add that if you have any franchises that you particularly like, that you think we've let off, uh, left off, then feel free to contact us and uh, tell us your thoughts about um, whether it's worth it.
0: So we're going to go ahead and start off with the Assassin's Creed franchise. I think first one came out... What was it? Yeah, 2007, maybe. I think, that, I think that's right. With, obviously, Assassin's Creed 1, which was centered in the Middle East. Uh, it introduced sort of the, the style of the game, the whole sort of free-running and sort of counter-attack, fighting style, and a little bit of exploration, but not a lot really. That was limited to sort of flags as well as getting the synchronization in the cities. And that sort of set up sort of the basic formula that would sort of be built upon in each game. But uh, Simon, going from Assassin's Creed 1 to Assassin's Creed 2, do you think it was really necessary to have played the first game to really understand the second?
1: Well, I did it in sequential order, so I don't see it any other way. I did hear a lot of people that say, um, no, no, you don't really need one, because in two, the opening sequence is pretty much, I think it was even called previously on Assassin's Creed, where Desmond, in an extended cutscene, basically explains all of Assassin's Creed 1. He said, I'm Desmond Miles, I live, there was this, Table called the Animus, it lives allows you to relive memories of your ancestors. I lived as Altair bin Al-Had, and I went through the Middle East killing a bunch of people, and spoilers, things, but he basically says it all. Um, so I really liked it for what it was, except that the gameplay might have um, spoiled uh basically not sold you on future ones because it was repetitive but the graphics were really nice i'll tell you that much
0: yeah th- that was uh, a very nice uh jump actually having played a little bit of uh, assassin's creed 2 um more recently than one obviously before i started this playthrough when i went back and started playing one i was sort of amazed at uh, how far back it seemed to be at least graphically. But Simon, going from two to the uh, the next game in the series, I believe it's, it's Brotherhood, correct? Yeah, brotherhood. brotherhood. Since you're still playing as Ezio in that game, instead of making the uh, the massive jump of several hundred years and continents, is it more requ- is it required more to have played two when you go on to Assassin's Creed Two Brotherhood?
1: Yeah, Brotherhood, and by extension Revelations, probably because you're in the same character. You need to know where he comes from, what his original story was, and if you didn't really get that biographical information, those sequential flashbacks in Assassin's Creed 2, I think you'd miss much of the point. But that being said, Revelations really, uh, I think, it kind of did something weird, which was it made you want to play Assassin's Creed 1 because Revelations had those um, moments from Altair's life where Ezio got the memory keys to unlock the doors in Masyaf, and uh, they were memories of Altair, and through that, it made you want to actually figure out who this guy was that you kind of randomly spent the off-mission on in, Um, which I think they might have shot themselves in the foot by waiting so long, because now when people actually go and play Assassin's Creed one again, they're gonna be like, "Oh my god, I've been, I've just spent five hours on helping random people, and this is really repetitive, and the, the gameplay sucks compared to the other ones."
0: And I mean, to be fair to uh, the team that made it, Simon, we did see a little bit of those flashbacks. I think it was, um, I'm, I think into, I remember uh, specifically a scene where it's like Altair climbing up into a. A tower and meeting a uh, a feminine friend of his uh, for a little late night hookup uh so i mean there is a there is a little bit of that, but i guess what do, what do you want to say for this do we want to i I'm, I'm thinking sort of based on on what you said it's not necessary to have played all of them, but it makes sense to it like it, it's sort it's of cer-
1: yeah it certainly does um and also um Let's extrapolate to number three. I think for number three, you're definitely going to have to want to play at least the two-story arc. Sure, you can get away with two alone just to get the baseline footing for the gameplay mechanics. But as we said in last week's podcast, or last podcast, um, the, the story arc really in gameplay-style progression introduces you to guns and grenades, bombs, a lot more, which you'll probably be using in Assassin's Creed 3, probably going to give you a smoother transition. Now, I think by the time 3 rolls around, Altair is going to be pro- hope, maybe completely irrelevant. We know that the story could go completely loopy in all sorts of mind-blowing ways. They've, they've definitely not been afraid to sort of throw out random uh things, things. that completely yeah. change your perspective of history and the dynamics of various characters but as far as we can tell now you don't really need to play number one two is recommended
0: and then obviously beyond that the the two sort of expansion pack games, sort of things whatever you want to call them wherever in that spectrum, they fall. I think by extension, you have to you have to play those if you're gonna if you're gonna start with two. So the, the next series we're gonna look at is the Halo series.
1: Now here we have an interesting um, problem. Should you play? Should you start with Combat Evolved Anniversary and then go back to Halo Two, which was an Xbox title, or should you play Halo the absolute original and then work your way up sequentially from there or should you start where the story really starts which is reach and then go to halo and then go to halo 2 i mean alex you got any thoughts on this
0: i mean it's it's really a toss-up as far as where you want to start i mean there's there's merits for i think each of those that you said i mean you starting with anniversary edition Obviously, it's the exact same story as Halo. I mean, they they basically included the exact same game, just sort of reskinned it and added in a few things. But it's those few things that make it stand out, those terminals that they added to uh, to give it a little bit more backstory and to tie into some of the novelizations uh, that have been released. Those give you more knowledge and a little bit uh, more insight. But at the same time, if this is your first experience in the Halo universe you might not really know what's going on, and so I'm, I'm almost wondering if it makes sense to come back later, which is what would give, uh, you know, points to playing the original Halo first and sort of playing them in, in order of release. However, you could also, as you say, argue that starting with Reach would be a good idea because, as you say, chronologically in the story, it does come first. However there are certain aspects in, uh, of the game certain times within it where references are made to uh, previously, at least in, in, in our timeline, uh, previously released games um, that you might not understand if you hadn't already played them. Like I think there's a, a moment in, uh, in Reach where you're getting uh, the Master Chief onto a uh, certain ship. And I'm not sure you'd necessarily get those references unless you'd played through the original, and then two, and then three.
1: Yeah, but, for example, the Pillar of Autumn, I'll say it right now, that ship at the very end, taking off, leaving Reach, that would give you complete backstory and understanding as to... Why the first cutscene of Halo 1 is you sitting in space by the ring with the pillar of in the pillar of autumn which is
0: that's, that's exactly why when you look at when you look at everything you take everything into account ultimately reach does get my vote as the starting point because I mean we've, we've seen this a bunch in movies where they sort of they go back and do prequels and we're not going to mention any. Uh, series that may or may not have been uh, altered slightly by prequels (laughs) excuse me sorry I've been sick lately Um, but yeah we've seen those prequels lately and luckily with this I think this prequel actually added a lot to it instead of sort of changing the way we look at it completely Uh, and so because of that I think it is sort of the logical place to start given where we are now, I mean, obviously, if, you know, you're asking me this in 2007 or whenever when Halo 3 came out, I'd obviously say start with 2, then go to 3, or then go to 2, and then go to 3. What are you, stupid? But now that there's so many different options, there's different paths to take, but ultimately, when it comes down to it, for me, at least for the best experience, the the order I would go in would be Reach, and then Anniversary, and then 2, and then 3.
1: Yeah, because Anniversary actually more or less offers you uh, the best of both worlds. There's the back button switching, which allows you to play and really see the stark contrast between what it looked like back then and what it looks like now. Some of those scenes with the skyboxes and lighting were absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, that's actually something uh, Simon and I have been doing
0: lately just for a bit of fun is doing a, a legendary run on Anniversary Edition, and it's it's pretty ridiculous. We sort of, we, we stop, you know, every every couple of minutes, you know, in between fighting you know, whatever group of uh, elites and grunts and jackals have been thrown at us lately, and we just sort of stop and just hit the back button and just sort of stare and just look around because, honestly, it gets pretty ridiculous. Like, I mean, even, even from the first mission, from the very beginning, when you come out of your, your sealed pod, you, you look around and you see... All these details on the wall and the lighting and, you know, there's indents and everything looks so realistic and looks great. And then you hit back button and it's literally a flat gray rectangle with other flat gray rectangles. And you're just like, oh my God, how like, how is this like, how is this as mind blowing as it was at the time? but, I mean, it really it just it shows you how far we have come in that in that span of time, but that's that definitely does add that extra level of connecting it with the original game because you get all of that as well as the terminals, which provide further backstory and sets you up for two, which then sets you up for three and the completion of the story at least until November sixth.
1: Well, I would like to briefly mention that Halo 2 is going to be kind of the odd one out cuz it's now the only Xbox title kind of you're going to have this really nice-looking game going into a kind of terrible-looking game, kind of going into a mediocre game again.
0: Well, Simon, that prompts the question in
1: 2014.
0: Yeah, what is it? 2, 3 years from now, are we going to see a Halo 2 anniversary?
1: Who knows. Uh, I'm Depending on the numbers for this one, 343 might see fit to make that, and that would tie directly into our previous discussion of will Halo Anniversary really start the trend, start the ball rolling on uh, re- renovating these favorites.
0: Yeah, because I remember I was listening to um, some of the guys on 343 talk about um, the development of this game, and when you, when you really think about it, it's not all that difficult because you, when you think about it in most games, you have to design the entire map and you have to program, you know, all the enemies and you have to program the AI and do all this stuff. Uh, in Anniversary, they really didn't have to do much of that at all. They really, they they honestly, they had to reskin everything. Maybe add in a little bit of uh, AI stuff and maybe some more physics and, and other things like that, but for the most part, it was really just taking the old car, souping up the engine, and Slapping a new coat of paint on it, and then it was right back out the door. So, I mean, it it seems uh, in the big picture that seems like it's a pretty cheap way to turn a, a profit and put out what, I, at least in my opinion, is has been a pretty enjoyable game.
1: Yeah, it's like it's like new Super Mario Brothers, except done classily.
0: Just as the Renaissance, everything that is old is new again.
1: Exactly. So let's see. Um, oh, we should probably mention that Halo 3 ODST actually comes first after Halo 2 because you're an ODST, it's a big shift. You're playing in New Mombasa after Master Chief leaves. So, in some senses, you should actually play Halo 3 ODST after you've played about three missions of Halo 2 once the slipspace rupture happens. And then Master Chief takes off chasing the Prophet of Regret. If you want to play it as strictly chronologically as it is, kind of a jumping around experience. I know, but um, that's how you play it most literally.
0: If we ever see uh, larger disc uh, sizes or whatever sort of format comes next, do you ever think we'll see, um, I don't know, an entire an entire set maybe all on one or two discs or something? That just goes through the whole story, and you know, as we talked about, I think it was last podcast with Call of Duty, just sort of interspersing everything all
1: together. Yeah, that was our first podcast talking about HD remakes again. And um, while while it would make sense for an actual historical event, World War II, I think the number of paradigm shifts and character shifts with uh, with Halo would make it untenable. I mean, you have the superhuman Master Chief with the one HUD type of HUD, switching to uh, ODSTs for four or five hours with their own HUD and their own missions. Then, if you recall, the next mission is with the Arbiter of all people, and you switch again from to the whole different side. It's I would be completely disorienting if I were new to this.
0: Well, but at the same time, you know, you you've had all of the uh, the first game and the first couple missions of the second game to sort of. Get set in things, and then at that point, the argument could be made that, oh, you know, it's just it's switching things up and keeping it fresh. So, I don't know. I mean, there's there's points to be made for both sides. I'm not sure if it will ever happen. If it does happen, it's not going to happen for a while, which prompts us to move on to the next game we're looking at, which is Gears of War. Gears of War.
1: So, uh, I did just recently finish Gears of War 3, finished the whole story. It was interesting. Um Alex. Yeah, we actually did a um a hardened run through was it? Was it hardened
0: insane? Yeah, oh, sorry, insane. Yeah, we did that in I think we timed it uh you spent the night. And I think we did it in what 25 hours? Oh, yeah, something about that. Yeah. So finally got that done. Yeah, we got we got the, we got that out of the way. I mean, to be we we did actually sleep for several hours, so that wasn't wasn't a straight playthrough, but um I've played some of the uh, the first Gears of War. I didn't play any of the, the second game except for, I think, some multiplayer at a friend's house. And then I jumped right into the third one. And with a little bit of explanation from Simon, sort of uh, asking questions, just sort of checking up, making sure my facts were correct. Most of the time it was just saying, hey, is this right? Um, I, I pretty much got into the swing of things. I wasn't too disoriented. I mean, the combat system is... It, it's it's pretty basic, you know, hey, there's a wall, tap A. There's an enemy, hold R. It's it's, it's pretty simple stuff. It's fun, but it wasn't too challenging, uh, at least for me, to get back in the swing of things having not played the second game.
1: I should also mention that on the Gears of War 3 disc, and you kind of glossed over it, there was actually a previously on Gears in which it was a specially filmed segment, Cutscene in which Anya pretty much explains exactly what happened in the past few games. So in that sense, if you watch that, the past two really aren't necessary. Cover-based shooting, uh, pretty simple to learn and understand. Um, and in really, in fact, Gears of War 1 kind of had some stupid segments with, like, the uh, krill nighttime thing. You had to shoot the propane tank so they would burn so that the bats, like... Uh, things wouldn't eat you up and there was like the Batmobile segment where you kept switching between driving the thing and manning the cannons Uh, just a lot of silly aspects to it Gears of War 2 got a little better Um, that one actually threw in some half decent story with like the, the queen and like the secret research base and like Adam Phoenix being alive or not in the end um But in truth, really, if you want to just uh, go with the most recent one, you can. They're all Xbox 360 games. Epic made them, so the Unreal Engine makes them all look pretty nice, but not really necessary. Yeah, I mean, graphically, they're all pretty much on the same footing, and it's just sort of
0: which particular type of locus are you you interested in shooting. And so, yeah, as Simon said, just jumping in at three is not going to be an issue so that that one is uh definitely one that you can give the uh the first two a pass if you want i mean i definitely just as sort of as a a gaming purist and completionist for me i like to know you know everything the whole story and if given the opportunity i probably would have played uh Gears of War and then Gears of War 2 before playing Gears of War 3 but that didn't happen and since I'm kind of lazy too, I'm probably not gonna go back and play. But I would recommend if you want the full story and uh, not to have moments of confusion here and here and again. Not not that common, but you know every once in a while, I'd recommend playing them. But as
1: once again, as Simon said, by no means necessary. We're gonna spend two seconds on this next one. Cod. Um, the only thing I... C- World War II, not in non-sequential order whatsoever. Even though I desperately wish they would be. Um, and so let's see the Modern Warfare story arc you might need to do those in order uh, play the original Modern Warfare for sure that was the one that started all of us the good one
0: yeah and then 2 gets a a little a little wacky and then 3 sort of just says hey they liked that when we did this one kind of thing in 2 let's do it again and then hey they liked it when we
1: did this other thing in 1 let's do that too exactly the- Maybe the Modern Warfare three story arc because, and I think it's only going to be the three of them because by the end of it, uh, spoiler alert, everyone's dead. Yeah that that was the uh, that was the technique I was referencing there. I don't think we need to do spoiler tags. Everyone's played it at this point, I think. And for those few of you who are still uninitiated, that's our recommendation. And there's the there's the spoiler. Yeah,
0: and then the uh, the tricky bit is with Treyarch, Black Ops.
1: Black Ops 1 is going to be completely separate from Black Ops 2 in terms of story, gameplay, well, not gameplay, but story. Now, I, I, I didn't think that was the case, Simon. I thought it was something like your character's son
0: or grandson or something is the main character in this game, and you're actually like like referencing his, his experiences. I was pretty sure I read that somewhere.
1: Oh whatever. It doesn't matter. These random off like delusions that you have in Black Ops what, they're not going to factor into Black Ops 2. It's just it's skin deep. The story's skin deep. It just serves to drive you to different colored places.
0: And as we all know that those colored places are themselves skin deep. It's it's honestly it's just selling a uh, the newest version of multiplayer. You know, the flavor flavor of the month or really the flavor of the of the year for uh, Activision and Call of Duty. So we're going to move on from there. As we said, it's, it's nothing too complex there. So our next one is Mass Effect. We will answer this in three words. Yes, you do. That's Honestly, that's, there's nothing else that can be said for that. You should play the first two before you play three. There is the option to not play the first two. If I could, I would come to your house, if you didn't play the first two, and slap you. Because you are missing a ton, and you are not getting the same gameplay experience. It's nowhere near as fun, it's nowhere near as complex and in-depth. And honestly, it's just being stupid on your part if you don't.
1: Exactly. The myriad of choices that you can make directly and deeply impacts... Uh, what kind of game you have, there are a ton of possibilities that only can happen if you play the first two games. Now, um, for those of you on PlayStation, you never had the joy of ever playing the original Mass Effect. You had this crippled little comic storybook that uh, decided, made your key decisions for you, called Mass Effect uh, Genesis, I believe, where you made your decisions.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to uh, revert to my earlier stage in gaming, where I was the Xbox fanboy, where I'm going to say, ha ha, sucks to have a PS3, and now we're reverting back to impartial, unbiased journalist. I'd say that's unfortunate, but you should go along and play Mass Effect 2 at the very least.
1: Absolutely. D- really get a feel for it. Now, there are two things that if there ever were a reason to not play Mass Effect, one, they would be the driving around and the gameplay mechanics. Those were absolutely terrible.
0: I mean, I have no idea what you're talking about. Driving around in that tank was fucking amazing. I know a lot of people hated it, but just playing with those booster jets and literally driving straight up the face of a mountain and launching myself off and just watching this thing roll was fucking hilarious.
1: This is Jaded Me, who has played it a 100%ed, like, did everything, all side quests, um, about eight times over, uh, yeah, by the time you drive, like, struggle up your, uh, 55th mountain on your eighth playthrough, you know, you have to kind of weave it left and right, back and forth, to try and get it over this gigantic mountain that's in your way, it's no, that's no
0: fun. I'm just gonna go ahead and blame that on the fact that, you have to get 100% achievements on everything, and that's your own
1: fault. <laughs> sure. Uh, back to our original topic. Yeah. We've had plenty of people say that, yeah, you can you can do two and then go on, but um, I'll say this right now. There's one really, really key decision that you make in Mass Effect 2, or no, Mass Effect 1, that if you cannot do that, if you don't have Genesis or something like that to at least affect that change... It's going to completely change the paradigm uh, of, of the rest of the game. Well I mean, and I, there are several like that. Yes, I, mean, I, know, I know the one decision you're talking
0: about there, but I would actually add, I think there's, there there's quite a few more than that. but I mean, as we said, our recommendation, our, our very strong recommendation is that if at all possible, you play one or do Genesis, whatever whatever it is you can do to set yourself up for the fullest and most enjoyable uh, story experience. Next series is The Elder Scrolls, a, uh, a personal favorite of mine. And uh, this one is is a lot more challenging, especially with the release of Skyrim. Because for the first four games in the series, uh, Arena, Daggerfall, Morrowind, and Oblivion, all of those games took place over, I'm pretty sure it was a 44-year span of time. Essentially, they were all within the reign of... Of Uriel Septon the seventh, the last. uh, Well, actually, I'm well. Spoilers for Oblivion here. I mean, the game is seven years old at this point. I'm pretty sure I'm safe in saying this, but uh, it's the the last real emperor. Martin sort of, somewhat takes the throne, kind of not really for a little bit. So that was sort of the the end of the of the Septon dynasty. That 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 his his reign is really the uh, the setting. For all of these games because you've got the um the the jaguar tharn incident in uh arena and then you've got the uh the worm king um the, like the warp in the west in Daggerfall. then minecraft you have the uh the the whole thing there in vanderfell and then obviously oblivion is the oblivion crisis and all of those are much more related to each other simply because of the uh the time span over which they uh, take place, they're much more linked together. The Empire is much more sort of cohesive in that way. And while it's not necessary to really really for any of them to have played the, the previous game in the series, you, you understand so much more of the world and so much more of the characters, the setting, the just the, the cultures in the game if you had played the previous game and set you up. Now, the tricky bit is when we get to Skyrim, Elder Scrolls Five, the most recent one. Because while all those games took place over about a 44-year span, in Skyrim, we decided to hit the fast-forward button a little bit, and we jumped forward 200 years. So in that, in that one gap between games, we go from maybe 10 or 15 years to going to 200 years and setting up a completely different location somewhere never been before in the game and with a much, much changed political landscape. However, having that previous knowledge sets up a lot of the uh, gameplay in Skyrim, because I remember when I first started playing Skyrim, having played you know Oblivion, Morrowind, etc., having played those games, I knew everyone, you know, everyone said in Oblivion, oh, well, they didn't use enough voice actors, so I was very aware of the... The sort of stock phrases that were used all the time. The oh, by the nine, that was very iconic. I remember them saying that. And one of the weirdest things for me when I started playing Skyrim was I went into a uh, town and someone was saying like as I walked by, oh, by the eight. I was like, wait, wait, hold, hold up, wait a minute, your math is off there, buddy. What's what's going on? And I think it's that sort of that level of immersion, that prior knowledge. That really adds to the game, it sets up the whole conflict between the Thalmar, the Empire and the um the, the native nords, the stormcloaks and so I think this is in a in a similar way uh, to some of the games we talked about before it's not necessary, but for immersion's sake and for really fun. And just adding to the story and the gameplay, I would definitely recommend at least having played at least play Morrowind and uh, and Oblivion. I mean, Morrowind is uh, an Xbox game, a lot of people say it doesn't hold up that well. But I mean, it was for for the time, the graphics were ridiculous, and it's still, it still it holds up well. It's still very much a playable game, especially if you are lucky enough to have it on PC, which I would always recommend playing uh, Bethesda games on a PC. If you have it on PC, there's still a very active modding community always releasing these HD textures, which make the game look just as good as you know an updated Oblivion. So I would definitely recommend playing at least Morrowind and Oblivion before playing Skyrim, because it really sets the stage and sets the scene and makes the game that much more alive.
1: Uh, this has been the Alex Miller Hour. Um, I'm just going to ask one quick question because I know you've had your dramatic monologue for forever. If I'm chomping at the bit to really play Skyrim, I heard this great game's going to come out. Do I really have to, and I've also heard of the Elder Scrolls, that they're notable and iconic for having billion-hour gameplay. Do I really have to get through Morrowind and Oblivion? I've heard Oblivion takes forever if you want to really get a good experience out of it. Can I really just go and play Skyrim? Because I know that's going to occupy my time for again the next thousand hours. I mean, as as I said, well, well a thousand
0: hours—you're definitely you're playing multiple characters there. But yeah, that's um. I definitely, it can go that long. And I would say, if you're if you you know you're really impatient, you're really looking forward to it. I mean, I I know I definitely couldn't wait. I got it day one, and started just went to town with it. But if you're if you're really unable to wait, I would say you can go ahead. I mean it's obviously it's it's your choice, <laughs> you can do whatever you want. But I would recommend if you can be a little bit impatient, you can definitely do like a I I don't I don't know if I'd call it a speed run, but you could definitely do a, a more um driven, a more direct run through the game instead of sort of meandering from one thing to another. You definitely you could definitely plan things out pretty easily where you could Sort of hit all the highs of the game and really get a feel for it in not that long of a time, and that way set yourself up pretty, pretty excellently, excellently for Skyrim. But as I said, if you're just you're ready to go, you're raring to go, you just you want to start playing right this minute, I'd say go ahead, you'd be fine. But that's just my personal recommendation: is to try and absorb as much of the story as possible.
1: All right, and we're going to move on to our final uh, series that we have selected here, Crisis. Um, so, I don't think really uh, very many people who are listening to this have actually played Crisis One because that was the PC game that was uh, had unbelievable sp- uh, spec requirements that nobody could actually play besides the people who had dumped about three thousand dollars worth in. That being said, it has since come out on games on demand for like nineteen ninety nine which is a ridiculous price, but that's a debate for another time um i played i started with crisis two uh had absolutely no problem with it. I quit, very quickly understood the cell corporation was this evil corporation who invested all this money to try and create these like nano suit and that the ceph are these alien things that were involved probably in Crisis One, um, and then probably uh, came back from you know for Crisis Two? The only thing I really would have a problem with, uh, which I got over pretty fast because I felt like it just wasn't worth pursuing, was uh, how the characters all knew each other. You know, like the Prophet, how he knew Gould, and how they really knew each other. I'm sure that was abstracted from me. Uh, Strickland le- from later on in the game, um, but other than that, I think it's okay because it's a lot more just action-based than the story. This, the 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 story and all its relevant components really are kind of just uh, put on, and the whole thing is just a show for Cry Engine. That's really what it is. And as far as Crisis Three goes. Um, we'll see. I don't think it really matters because it's like 20 years in the future and profit's been doing some other things, probably a clean break coming back to New York. Um, so that's, that's my thoughts. I'm going to be a lot more concise on that.
0: And well oh, okay, I'm sorry, Simon. I thought I was supposed to, supposed to speak here. let uh, let people know my mind. But yeah, I, as we said at the uh, the beginning of this segment, if you have any other series uh, you think we overlooked or that you think we should take another look at, or you'd like to comment on our own sort of interpretation of these series, go ahead and send us an email at comcast w g g at gmail or comment below.
1: And we're going to end it this week. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, We'll probably be on in two weeks from now. And we'll see what happens from then as soon as we get Dan and John's schedule for the summer. All right.
0: Thanks so much for listening, guys.